0: In a country where gender rights have been legislated and same-sex marriage has been legal since 2006, making it the first African country to do so, here in South Africa we claim to have a constitution that protects against discrimination based on sexual orientation. But the hate crime statistics and cases paint a very different picture. Although Cape Town is seen and recognized as a city that embraces all members of society, no matter their orientation, just a 15-minute drive out of the city, everything changes. Here in Kayalicha, being your true self is dangerous and sometimes deadly. It was the case for one young woman, in the prime of her life, with so much more living to do. Her life was tragically and violently ended, for no other reason than pure contempt and hatred. This is a Heartbreaking Case of Zoliswa Nkonyana. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined, and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. As mentioned in my previous episode, for this month, Pride Month, I will only be covering LGBTQIA+, victims and related crimes, in order to pay honour to their memory. I may not personally belong to the community, but I am an ally, and I will do what I can. So, without further delay, on to the episode. Zoliswa Nkonyana was born in the late 80s and grew up in Kailicha. Kailicha means new home and it is a heavily populated township in Cape Town. It was established, like many other townships during apartheid, in 1983, as an area for migratory workers. The government had further planned to move all illegal people to Transkai, a homeland created in the eastern part of the country. People living in existing townships near Cape Town fiercely resisted this move, Fights broke out in townships between the government and residents. These fights caused more people to move to Kyalicha. Currently, it is the biggest and youngest black township on the Cape Flats, with over 90% of the population identifying as black. The original planned population was 200,000 people, but soon this had doubled to 400,000. But the township doesn't only contain shanty houses or shacks, but it is made up of formal houses too, including RDP or governmental housing. Currently, the inhabitants deal with many difficulties, such as increased prevalence of HIV and AIDS, overcrowding, and large-scale unemployment, to name a few. But like many of the townships I discuss, it is also filled with hard-working individuals and families, like Zoliswa. As a young child, her mother was remarried, and Zoliswa gained a stepfather, Imunzi Gledwell Mendindi. From her early years, Zoliswa was always a tomboy and she didn't enjoy wearing women's clothing either. Her mother and her stepfather accepted her for the way she was. And her mother, well, she knew her daughter was queer, even at a very young age. But she loved her regardless as Zoliswa was her only God-given child. Zoliswa grew up with many friends and took a keen interest in playing soccer. Soon she joined a soccer team and she became very close friends with the other women on the team. And so her teen years progressed, much like any other teenagers, until one fateful night in 2006. On the 4th of February 2006, 19-year-old Zoliswa went to a tavern with some of her friends from her soccer team. This was a place that she had frequently visited, as it was just down the road from her home. The group of friends had bought a couple of beers, and they were having a good time out. As the night progressed, though, an argument broke out between Zoliswa and another female patron at the tavern, who was there with a group of nine men. But Bella... What exactly was this argument over, you may ask? Well, the argument was centred around Zoliswa and her friends using the ladies' toilets. Although the women were female and identified as such, this was an issue to this patron, as Zoliswa and her friends were pretending to be tomboys and had therefore lost their right to frequent the female restroom. This female patron and some of her friends then went on to state that lesbian women deserve to be raped and that they had no place living in the township. It was around this point that Zoliswa and her friend Pendiswa Mangala left the tavern to smoke outside. One of the female patrons part of that group would later testify that she had told the group of men that Zoliswa had tried to make a pass at her. It was at this point that even though Zoliswa and her friend had left the tavern, the group of nine men had followed them outside. And keep in mind that all of these men were under the age of 20. Lu Babalo Nklabati, one of the men, had then punched Pendiswa in the chest and it was at this point that the two women had separated and run in different directions. The men had decided to follow Zoliswa though. And what happened next was straight out of a nightmare. They had caught up to her next to a school, and as a later state witness would testify, begun clapping her. That same witness would state that the men were beating Zolisua, making up and down movements. Her friend, Pendiswa, who had run in a different direction, had circled back and was watching this happening from between some houses, but very soon she was spotted and so she had run away. The brutality that occurred to Zoliswa next involved stabbing, stoning, clubbing with a golf club, and the most heinous abuse. Side note, I'm not even sure where they managed to find a golf club. The female state witness had then apparently run to Zoliswa and it was around this point that seven of the nine men had run away. The remaining two had then attempted to pick up a large rock, from a nearby yard and continued attacking her. According to the later state witness, the nine accused, whilst gathered on the street after the attack, had also come across a visibly drunk man, Zolani Fato, and they had stabbed him too. Unfortunately, the man was apparently too drunk at the time to be able to later identify his attacker. The men had then gone back to a home in Kayalicha's Letha Park, where they discussed what they had done. Ntlabati had told the group that he had been responsible for the stabbing, and that he had given the knife to Mfundo Kulani to finish her off. Zoliswa Nokonyana was left in the gutter, her lifeless body only 10 feet from her home. From the very start it was clear that this case was not a priority to investigators. One of the detectives on the case had still not taken a statement from the sole witness three weeks after the murder as in his own words he hadn't managed to get around to it yet. From law enforcement shortcomings to atrocious journalism, the way this case was handled was dismal to say the least. The Sunday Times, a local weekly newspaper in South Africa, had covered Zoliswa's murder a few days after her death. Instead of a front page headline as they had initially opted for, the story was relegated to the inner pages of the newspaper. It also ran with a photograph of Zoliswa with her queer female friends. As a result of this news coverage, these women were targeted and subsequent reports stated that one of them had been raped. One of the witnesses, Zoliswa's friend, who had attended the court protests and sessions, was stabbed by two men in Nyanga in retaliation for giving testimony. And where exactly was the local media in all of this, you may ask? Well, they had only picked up the story after they had been bombarded by gay rights activists and groups. Oh, but wait, if this wasn't bad enough, in another journalism failure, an image of a key state witness was published without her permission. This subsequently resulted in her being forced to flee Cape Town for fear of her life. However, before she had fled, she had managed to identify the nine perpetrators. All nine men supposedly involved were arrested and charged with murder, as well as two charges of attempted murder each. All were under the age of 20 when they were arrested. A few were also apparently minors too. I unfortunately was not able to find much information on any of them besides their names. The accused had then applied for appeal section 174 of the Criminal Procedures Act, which basically denotes that an accused person is entitled as of right to a discharge if there is no evidence against him and if this is refused him and he is later convicted as a consequence of evidence given by his co-accused, his appeal will succeed. So basically this application, if successful, would have acquitted them of all charges. From the outset though, all nine of the men were acquitted on the two charges of attempted murder due to lack of evidence. During the trial proceedings, one of the three women who were present that night with the male group ended up turning state witness, as I previously mentioned. In early testimony, she said that she was the one who berated Zoliswa for using the ladies' toilet, saying that the group of women should have gone to the male toilets since they were acting like men she also went on to claim that zoliswa had made unwanted sexual advances towards her she stated that upon hearing about these advances the men she was with ran outside and started to assault zoliswa and her friend who tried to run away the trial continued with many unprecedented delays blunders, and issues. In 2008, the state failed to ensure witnesses were present and was found to have committed gross negligence. Defense attorneys had regularly missed court appearances too. During that time, the men were jailed for differing periods at Paulsmore Prison. Whilst in jail, many of the men became involved in prison gangs. So if you're interested to learn more about gangs within South Africa, in particular prison gangs, then please do check out my episode on Cameron Wilson. Whilst I was researching this case, I discovered that four years after the murder in 2010, four of the accused men escaped holding cells in Kaya with help from a police sergeant. I'm not entirely sure how they were found, but... They were. Some of the accused also had ongoing and past court cases and charges, including drug possession and murder, against them. And in case you were curious, the police sergeant was later arrested for defeating the ends of justice and, of course, aiding the escape. The constant failures by the justice system again and again stand testament to the almost common way in which many hate crimes seem to have been viewed by those in charge of protecting and upholding the law. During this time many alliances such as Free Gender, Triangle Project and Songka Gender Justice to name a few tried to fight for justice for Zoliswa. And eventually, there was a conclusion to this entire ordeal. In 2011, two of the accused, Anele Gwele and Zolile Kobese, were also acquitted on all charges. This had left the other seven men. Mbolelo Damba, Luyanda Lonsi, Sikelo Mase, Lubabalo Intlabati, Mfundo Kulani, Temba Klepu and Sabelo Yakiso to face murder charges. Sabelo Yakiso, who was 21 years old at the time, Temba Klepu, who was 21 years old at the time too, and Mfundo Kulani, who was 19 years old, were then acquitted because the state could not prove their involvement in the murder beyond reasonable doubt. And in October of 2011, after almost six years, Lubabalo Ntlabati, Citrello Mase, Luanda Lonzi and Mbolelo Tamba were found guilty on the charge of murder. The court found that these four men were guilty of killing Zoliswa because she was living openly as a lesbian woman. The sentencing of the guilty men was postponed twice. During the sentencing hearings, the four men waved and blew kisses to women sitting in the court. Yeah, you heard me correctly. Each of the men were then sentenced to 18 years each for the stabbing and stoning to death of Zoliswa Nkonyana. It had taken nearly six years and over 60 court appearances, But eventually, some form of justice had been served. The judge presiding over the case, Magistrate Radia Watton, had said, While the accused had a right to disagree with Nkonyana's lifestyle, it was wrong to resort to violence. Life is about choice. Zoliswa Nkonyana did not have the freedom to live out her choice. Violence will not go unpunished. She said that the accused expressed no remorse for their actions. The crime was driven by hatred and intolerance of her difference and the accused could possibly reoffend. She concluded that the sentences must serve as a deterrent but should be lenient enough to permit the possibility of rehabilitation. She stated, Only their parents apologized on their behalf, and we believe rehabilitation stands a small chance of being achieved. After the sentencing, Zoliswa's uncle, Arthur Koniana, had said, I'm still crying. I will never see her again. You understand that? I will never see Zoliswa again. But everything is alright now. I'm happy, happy with the sentence. Jill Henderson, a research and advocacy program coordinator from the Triangle Project, a non-governmental organization that fights for the rights of gay and lesbian people in Kyalicha, went on to say, The magistrate has named hate and intolerance on the basis of sexual orientation as an aggravating factor in sentencing. That is the first time that has happened in a criminal trial in South Africa. It has therefore set a precedent. However, although an example has been set, many lesbian women, not only in Kailicha, but in many parts of the country, continue to fear persecution and experience hate crimes on an almost daily basis. Zoliswa's murder was unfortunately not the first and would not be the last. Just. Two years later, Banyana Banyana female footballer and LGBTQ activist Yudi Similane, a black lesbian woman, was brutally raped and murdered in Gauteng. Her tragic story would make headlines. However, there were so many in between that didn't even make the news. So the question remains. How and why are these brutal murders continuing? And what exactly are the motives that drive perpetrators to commit such heinous and violent assaults upon queer women? Interestingly enough, in 2006, the same year that Zoliswa lost her life, South Africa became the first and remains the only African country to legalise same-sex marriage. Here in SA, we also have a constitution that protects against discrimination based on sexual orientation. Out of the 54 African states, only 22 of them have legalized homosexuality. In some African countries, it is punishable by imprisonment, whilst it is punishable by death in four. Mauritania. Nigeria in states where the Sharia law is applicable, Somalia and South Sudan. A bill was introduced in 2018 in South Africa to criminalize hate crimes and hate speech and in 2020 our president Cyril Ramaphosa passed into law the Civil Union Amendment Act which prohibits marriage officers from refusing to conduct same-sex marriages. So why am I telling you all of this, you may be wondering? Well, it is vital in order to understand what I'm about to try explain. So let's first look at the concept of corrective rape. This type of assault is often seen within queer black women, as was the case with Yudi Similani, for example. This term refers to when women who identify as lesbians are sexually assaulted or murdered because they are seen as not being real or straight women. These attacks are often referred to as curative because they are based off of the belief that lesbian women can be cured, of their sexual orientation, and they can be made straight by raping them. Yes, this is an actual thing. One man had said, and I warn you, what I'm about to say is disgusting to say the least. If there is someone who is trying to rape a lesbian, I can appreciate their thing. It's just to let them know that they must be straight. For me, I have no time to rape them, but if another guy wants to teach them the way, They must rape them they must rock them once she gets raped i think she will know which way is nice and this very phenomenon of correcting sexual orientation although incredibly disturbing is not inexplicable it is steeped in patriarchy in gender inequality in culture in historical oppression and in governmental segregation. The aspects I'll be touching on today are threefold, namely cultural beliefs, gender inequalities, and environmental and historical factors. So let's look at culture. From a cultural perspective, homosexuality is seen by many South Africans as being unchristian, un-African, an atrocity to black culture and traditional values. This is the hard truth that underwrites the fabric of many in our society. And I do not state this to attack any specific groups of people, but rather to draw attention to these aspects of society. Homo prejudice, based on myths and stereotypes, is alive and well, and flourishes in our schools and homes, at our workplaces, within the health and judicial systems, and especially religious institutions. And this prejudice is strengthened within different communities that exist within South Africa. Within popular discourse, it is implied that lesbianism is taboo and that same-sex desire is not native to South African culture. It is an african Journalists from both within and outside of South Africa have investigated this notion. One such woman was told by a man who was full of smiles at a taxi rank near Peter Meritzburg. If we want to finish lesbians and gays, they must be forcefully raped. A man must go back to his manhood. Woman must be woman. She must be ready and willing to have sex. Another man had said, They must be raped so that their gay and lesbian behaviour can come out. And a third man had placed two fingers to his temple and said, This gay and lesbian thing must end. I say bang, bang, bang. Yeah, I kid you not. This is real life. And this Is the reality for so many. This understanding of being an African is based on the idea that homosexuality was imported by the white people. It is therefore the other, and with it so are any individuals who belong to the queer community. Within African culture, men are considered to be the financial providers, whilst women are the homemakers and caretakers, Women are expected to work for men or for the approval of men. This is the way it has been in the past and this is the way that many would like it to remain. Many black queer activists have spoken out, on the impact and influence that culture and an ancient belief system has had on their daily existence, as it is often this group that experiences the brunt of the establishment. It is evident that patriarchy is deeply rooted within South African culture. LGBTQIA individuals represent a minority, and thus are more susceptible to being denounced as abnormal or different. Within the cultural borders of South Africa, this perceived abnormality poses a threat to the heterosexual patriarchal norm. And it is unfortunately most often when women pose this threat that they are met with violence. Violence that is systemic within South Africa, and unfortunately quite prevalent. Even within the queer community, Women are always at a higher risk, which brings us to gender inequality. With traditional values comes the deeply patriarchal beliefs of society. There is a strong belief that men have power over women and their bodies, and this is most definitely not limited to South Africa. This is also one of the main reasonings and factors that drive the heinous acts that I am discussing. This branch of ideology, namely the patriarchy, asserts that women and men are not equal. The patriarchal roots of corrective rape is fielded by the assumption that a lesbian's sexual orientation is due to her not having previously experienced a satisfying encounter with a man. A female queer victim had said of her ordeal, They said to me, After everything we're going to do to you, you're going to be a real woman, and you're never going to act like this again. And her experience is unfortunately not rare or uncommon. And many others' experiences, like hers, have been documented over the years, by various researchers and authors. This belief system is steeped in the notion that somehow the existence of queer women is directly correlated to their relationship to men. The idea of lesbianism is a threat to male dominance and power. This leads to some men feeling as though they are being challenged to exert their power, which, when not displayed physically, is often displayed through sexual acts. And this exertion is often particularly violent. And it is the black lesbian women from townships who already face so many disadvantages that find themselves particularly at risk. There are no known patterns associated with violent attacks on black lesbians. They occur at homes, on streets, at social spaces, at taxi ranks and even inside taxis both during the day and at night. Surrounded by the African culture of their community, within their direct environment, these women challenge the norm. Whilst lacking access to sufficient support systems and already facing limitations as well as economic and social discriminations. A study from the gay rights group Triangle in 2008 revealed that whilst 44% of white lesbians live in fear of sexual assault, 86% of black lesbians felt the same way. And although all women in South Africa are vulnerable to violence, particularly gender-based violence, there is a correlation between increased poverty and increased vulnerability. Many people of colour, as a result of historical segregation, find themselves in a situation where they have a far more limited access to resources. This heightens the risk of attack, which is only magnified within cultures that are deeply homophobic and in which sexual violence is seen as a weapon. Without strict systems of support, existing prejudices and a legacy of inept systems, many of these female victims are unlikely to report assaults. One reason for this is that many lesbian victims allege that the police do not take them seriously. One woman had said, These policemen are often the ones making insulting comments to us. They are also in the community and many of them are homophobic. Then later, he's in a uniform and I must go and tell him that I was raped because I'm a lesbian. And if the rape is not taken seriously at the police station and the perpetrator is not arrested, then the victim often finds themselves and their lives at higher risk. Case in point, Zoliswa's friends who were published in the photograph in the newspaper who found themselves in high-risk situations, some with tragic consequences. There have also been instances where segments on LGBTQIA assaults within vulnerable populations have been featured on television and network shows, which results in an increase rather than a decrease of homophobic attacks. What serves to aid these high rates of assaults are not only the dismally low arrest and conviction rates, but also the assumption that the perpetrators will not be punished for their crimes. This results in an increase of men committing acts of violence, often with the belief of no repercussions. And the evidence backs this up as very few cases of rape against lesbian women have ever resulted in convictions. This once again strengthens the notion of crime without consequence. So ultimately, this phenomenon, although incredibly disturbing, is not inexplicable upon diving deeper. It is steeped in patriarchy, gender inequality, cultural beliefs, historical oppression and governmental segregation. But this knowledge affords us as a society the opportunity to change something. In a time where gender inequality, homophobia and violence are deeply ingrained in a society weighed down and burdened by the unfortunate past of the country, the only solution posed is to attempt to rise up together. Corrective is unfortunately only one of the many crimes that the queer community face because of a lack of understanding and acceptance within the population. The approach to a better future needs to be multifaceted, targeting not only the governmental organizations in charge, but also focusing on education as a bid to develop a better understanding of the queer community. But don't get me wrong. Change must start at a governmental level. There needs to be defined hate crime legislation, education policies for both state agents and school children, as well as funding for civil society and attorneys who are able to protect these LGBTQI rights. Stronger action needs to be taken against discrimination and violence towards the queer community. And that action needs to be taken by you and I, as a community. Queer or straight, all of us must stand together to share a message of equality. Those in the most vulnerable places are trapped by a collective oppression of sexism, heteronormative values, homophobia and patriarchal structures. And their cases are the ones that often fail to make the news, time and time again. I mean, did you even hear about Zoliswa's case before this episode? There is but one photograph of Zoliswa Konyana that is always used. And that is perhaps symbolic of who she was and how she was valued in her death. She was no celebrity, she was an ordinary woman who breathed the same air as you and I. A woman who had talent. A woman who had friends and family who cherished her. And a woman who did not deserve the ending she received. For LGBTQIA plus help and support, you can contact OUT, an organization that has been around for over 20 years, providing health services, support and general lifestyle advice to the lesbian, gay, bisexual and transgender community amongst others. Until next week, stay safe, stay blessed and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye.